Welcome to the seventh year of the Nutritionist webinars. I'm Marianne Fezenden, Educational and Academic Liaison for AMTS and your host for this series. This year we are focusing solely on emissions with an emphasis on dairy cattle and what nutritionists need to focus on to keep our industry viable, sustainable, and profitable whilst minimizing the effect dairy has on the environment. To that effect, our speakers this year will focus on providing information and help us get accurate information spread beyond the industry. Typically, I play music prior to the start of each webinar session. This year, we have decided to hold an open question forum 30 minutes prior to the start of the presentations. This is an opportunity to ask AMTS team members questions, any topic, be it program functionality, model biology, or specific nutrition management questions. The Zoom webinar is live on Facebook, and retention of those conversations will be able to be found on our Facebook page. We will do this each month and see how it goes. Today, our speaker is Dr. Elliot Block, a research fellow and director of technology in specialty products division of Arm & Hammer Animal Nutrition, a division of Church & Dwight. Elliot completed his BS at Cornell University and attained a Master of Science and PhD from Pennsylvania State University. He held a position as professor in animal science at McGill University, where he was the director of the Cattle and Research Complex. After 19 years in academia, he left to join Arm & Hammer Animal Nutrition in the Specialty Products Division. Dr. Block's areas of interest have been varied, including but not limited to parasitism, bovine somatotropin, DCAD, milk synthesis, essential fatty acid nutrition, and more in over 125 published manuscripts, 250 scientific abstracts, 32 conference proceedings, two textbook chapters, 15 patents, and numerous additional distinctions. A speaker of English, French, Portuguese, and Spanish, we likely could have had him conduct this webinar with all our co-hosts in their preferred languages with no difficulty. It is an honor to have him join us to speak about palm oil. Please enjoy the recorded webinar and remember to add your questions to the chat or Q&A windows in the Zoom platform. Elliot will join us to answer the questions after the webinar. Okay, good morning or good afternoon or good evening, depending where you are in the world. Um, my name is Elliot Block. I am a research fellow at Arm & Hammer Animal and Food Production. I was asked to give a seminar today as an overview on the issues related to palm oil, palm oil production and palm oil use. Uh, zoning in eventually on the feeding issues, uh, feeding cattle with derivatives of palm oil. So palm oil is a brief introduction. It was originated from West Africa. Um, it got introduced into Malaysia, mainly as an ornamental plant. And you can see from the photos that it's basically a palm tree, a type of palm. Um, it began being grown commercially in the, in the early 1900s, mainly for its oil. A big expansion happened back in the 60s when the Malaysian government introduced a massive program on diversification 
And today it is the leading agricultural crop in Malaysia, uh, followed second by Indonesia. So Malaysia still remains the largest palm oil producer in the world. Produces about close to 14 million tons, which is about 47% of the estimated 30 million tons of palm oil. So it's a, it's a large producer. Followed by Indonesia as a close second at about 11 and a half million tons, which is 38% of the palm oil production. And it's increased by, it increases year over year between six and 8%. Uh, so versus last year, it's about 7% higher now. So the palm, the kernel, which is, uh, that's harvested from the tree. It is, it's called the palm fruit. And it basically has a dense center that's called the palm kernel. And then the outside, which is the end, the endocarp, and uh, I'm sorry, the mesocarp. The mesocarp contains the oil that we use to make palm oil, edible oil. The palm kernel has a completely different fatty acid profile. Uh, it's used mainly in cosmetics and pharmaceuticals. And I'll show you why. Its fatty acid composition is totally different from the mesocarp. In fact, it looks more like coconut as far as an oil is concerned. So this mesocarp is what's pressed for palm oil. And the center, the palm kernel is used to make palm kernel oil. Everything that you see on the market for feeding cattle are derived. They're not palm oil directly, but they come from palm oil uh, refinement. And the refinement process is not too different from other oils. You basically get transportation into the plant. Uh, you get a sterilization process, a stripping process, extraction, purification, which leads to crude palm oil. This crude palm oil then goes into refining, which can follow one of two streams, depending upon what the... Uh, what streams they want to take off for different functions. So primarily there's physical steaming, then degumming, which has to happen with almost all oil production, then a deacidification because of the phosphoric acid that was used, deodorization, and that goes into what's referred to as refined bleached uh, deacidified palm oil. Okay, or that, that's the stuff that people use to eat. From this deacidification process, though, you get what we call fatty acid distillate. And what that is, is the free fatty acids that were taken off of the triglycerides that go into palm oil. This is the stuff that smells. <laughs> if you ever, if you ever smell PFAD, palm fatty acid distillate, it smells like calcium salts of fatty acids because that's exactly what it is. Uh, and it is these 
free fatty acids that actually impart flavors to different oils. So for those of you familiar, I guess the most, uh, the best analogy is uh, olive oil. Uh, virgin olive oil still has some free fatty acids in there. So it has a flavor and a smell uh, that's distinct to olive oil. And when you consume refined olive oil, first of all, you see the pigments are gone. It, it's a more clear yellowish solution rather than a green solution. And uh, the flavors are just not there. The fatty acid profile though, of the distillate and the oil, the edible oil is pretty close to the same. So the, the oils that we eat are primarily triglycerides. Uh, fatty acid distillates are free fatty acids from that production. There's another process that's used. Uh, it's used to make soap stocks. And as the name implied, that's what you make soap from. And you wind up with acid oil. But it's still a neutralization, bleaching, deodorizing that occurs in both processes. So why has palm oil been in the news? I think it's overrated. <laughs> First of all, why did palm oil get so popular? And I'll show you some data that you know, it is the number one oil crop in the world. Uh, why did palm oil have, or why does it have a bad rap? Um, it really has nothing to do with health benefits or health detriments. And then as of recently, there was this whole issue around, I, I think I think it was a contrived issue. I'm giving you the punchline. Um, is butter, is, is milk fat from cows fed palm fatty acids um, used at levels that you would normally supplement these fats at less spreadable or is it harder at room temperature? And actually in Canada, they had this whole thing called Buttergate and the Dairy Farmers of America pulled me in, American feed industry pulled me in. I don't know why me, because I'm not a palm expert necessarily, uh, but to do a little bit of digging as to, is this real or is this hype? So as a table, let's see, what, why is palm so high? Look at the tonnage. This is a million metric tons for 2021. 75 and a half million metric tons of palm oil were produced. Close second is soy at 60 million. You see that all the other ones are very low. And you notice the corn doesn't even make it on here. Corn, I think, is about 2, 2.2 million metric tons. So most of the oil in the world is palm oil. And of that, we, as I said this before, and I think it's critical to understand that cows, the supplements we feed cows is not palm oil. It is that fatty acid distillate of wheat, of which three to 4% of palm oil is PFAD. So essentially we have 3 million metric tons of PFAD that's produced in the refinement process of palm oil. 
And graphically, you can see it more clearly that you know, palm oil is about 36% of the world oil production. Soy is close second at 29, and then everything goes down to olive oil, which is 2%. So why is palm so popular? I think these two pie graphs would give you almost the whole story. Uh, if we look at the planted crop area on the left, for all the oils produced in the world versus the production of these oils on the right, you see that palm oil accounts for 4.8% of the planted oil crop acreage, yet produces 35% of the world oil production. So it is a highly productive plant. Versus soybeans at the close second, 43% of the total crop area for oil seeds is in soybeans, producing 29% or 30% of the total oil production. So much less land use, uh, plus they're a permanent crop. Uh, the plantations, the palm oil plantations usually will last about, depends on which one, but 15 to 25 years uh, once it's planted and established. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying I went back to this to the paper and I could not find what these values, the units for these values. Uh, but this gives you an idea, at least a relative idea, of the energy input, total energy input versus total energy output uh, of palm, soy, and rapeseed was in there also, or canola. And you see that it's, it's highly efficient palm oil. So let's move to some of the effects of feeding fats on the properties of milk fat. And I don't think this is news to anybody really, thinking about it. Uh, this is a paper that I found from 1892 from the New Hampshire Experiment Station. And basically, I'm not expecting you to read this. Basically, it says that whatever you feed the cow is gonna reflect in the milk fat. And that's true, as true today as it was back then. If you feed anything with fish oils, you get a little more fish oils in the milk. Um, if you feed palm, you get a little bit more palmitic acid in the milk, uh, steric acid, same thing. So it's it's not news to people. What's news, uh, not news, what's made the news is that it does, because you're changing the fatty acid composition of the milk fat, you are changing the melting properties of that fat when you process it. So in other words, if you have more saturated fatty acids in milk, your, your milk, your cheese is going to be harder at a lower temperature. Um, compared to some of the unsaturated fats. So what goes into this milk fatty acid profile? Well, what you see here is breed differences uh, for 11 fatty acids across lactations as a percentage and some of the total 
saturated fats, monounsaturated fats, which is primarily 18.1 or oleic acid, and then the polyunsaturated fats, 18.2 and 18.3. And there are breed differences. You'll see that jerseys tend to have higher saturated fatty acid levels. Their butter and cheese tends to be harder at, uh, as temperature increases, it doesn't melt as quickly. Uh, and we see that if we look at 18.1, the unsaturated fat, it's a little bit lower and C16.0 saturated palmitic acid is a little bit higher. So there are some breed differences. As far as production systems, this particular study looked at conventional versus organic and virtually not very many significant differences here. Uh, if we look at the saturated fatty acids, we're about 70% on both. The 18-1 monounsaturated, about 26% on both. If we go down to palmitic acid, um, we're at about 31% and 30%. Uh, I'm sorry, that was palmitic, yeah, palmitic acid. And 18-1 oleic acid is also very similar to 23. So there are more breed differences than there are <clears throat> on production differences. And then if we look at heritabilities and our geneticists get very excited when these numbers are, when heritability is 0.1 or higher. So what you see is that the, the amount of short chain fatty acids, medium chain fatty acids, and long chain fatty acids are highly heritable. Also saturated is very heritable. Less so for unsaturated fatty acids. That's where the fudge factor comes in of whether you're increasing or decreasing that, but also it's a highly significant number. What else goes into milk fatty acids? Well, seasons, mainly because of feeding systems. So this was a uh, study done with Dutch, uh, Dutch cattle in Holland. And you see that grass silage tends to be high saturated fatty acids or higher in the mid 70s range. 70% saturated fatty acids. And in the summer, when they move on to fresh grass or pastures, it, it decreased. 68% versus 72, 73%. So not a huge swing, but a swing nonetheless. And this swing is primarily because the fresh grass is going to have more unsaturated fatty acids, especially if it's young than the silages, plus there's a pretty fast rate of passage there. So a lot of that bypasses the vermin uh, and you wind up reflecting that in the milk, which is also why you could get somewhat of a milk fat, not depression, but a milk fat slowdown um, when you're feeding grasses, fresh grasses. And these are probably very predictable based on that fact of more uh, unsaturated fatty acids in the milk of uh, summer fed cattle on grasses. 
You're looking here at the CLA content of milk, which is the fatty acid that can cause milk fat depression, a biohydrogenation end product of uh, a biohydrogenating essentially 18.2 and 18.3 linoleic and linolenic acids uh, on its way down to steric acid, 18.0. So you see more of the CLAs in the summer in these cattle. Uh, you see more 18.1 trans, which is the precursor of the CLA. It's, it's the really one of the first steps in getting 18.2 to 18.0. Uh, and then from here, it can go on to CLA. You're looking here at 18.3. Again, we see a slight increase. in the summer. And finally, this is just 18.1, oleic acid. We see more oleic acid in the summer as well. So what I'm trying to get you to, to take away on this is that milk fatty acids is going to vary with many different factors. Um, and we'll get into some more of those as we progress here. Uh, fresh versus conserved forages. I'm not really expecting you to read these numbers. Um, if we look at fresh forage, you know, we look at, let's take uh, the culprit here, what they call the culprit, palmitic acid. You see that there's an average concentration of 27% <clears throat> of palmitic acid in milk, milk fat when cows are fed fresh forage with a range of 22 to 38, pretty big range. If we move over to conserved forages, instead of 27, it's 31. So a small increase in C16 that has very little to do with what you're, with, with what supplemental fat you're feeding. Has more to do with the, the forages and grain mixtures. But even at that, you're still looking at a range of 25 to 39. So if you try to find significant differences uh, between cattle for 16.0, it's nearly impossible. This essentially represents the data from that trial. Uh, what we see here is the orange line is palmitic acid, and it hovers at about 32, 33%, goes down a little bit in the winter goes up a little bit in the summer, <clears throat> but you'd be hard pressed to find significant differences here. 18-0, which is steric acid, that's the gray line. It's relatively constant. You don't really see increases or decreases. Uh, you do see variation going on day to day, uh, but you don't see a big difference over time. And then with oleic acid, you see a bit of a decrease here just before winter sets in. This area you could say is lower, but it's still within the noise range um, of what normal milk fat will be. Now, this was an interesting study. It was done in Quebec and Ontario. Um, it's the C16 average uh, from October to April, October 2019 to April 2021. 
So you're looking at C16 here, and we see in February there seemed to have been an increase. This is actually the average, the overall average. The dark gray line, the dark gray bar is what's called the interquartile range. So it is the variation in herd average. And over time, you really don't see, you know, huge variations. We're talking here about a low of about 31% and a high of about 32%. Now, that will make, in the lab, that will make a difference in the, what's known as the solid fat content or the melting point uh, of butter, but I doubt very much that it would be highly significant. And if we look at it by parity, there are some differences, albeit small. Uh, if we look at de novo, in other words, the, the fatty acids that are made at the mammary gland versus the preformed, the ones that they're taking directly from the blood, we see the first calf heifers tend to have a slightly higher preformed fatty acid and a slightly lower de novo. Probably has more to do with body fat mobilization. Um, C16, a little bit lower <clears throat> than first calf heifers. 18.1, a little bit higher. But in a mixed herd, you're not going to see very many differences. <clears throat> this is basically that same data that they spread out onto a graph. And we see here that the preformed, so if these are coming from intake and body fat mobilization, it makes sense that you get more preformed milk fatty acids at the beginning of lactation when they're mobilizing body weight uh, and less de novo, the orange. And then over time, once you're at about a hundred, little less than a hundred days in milk, the de novo is pretty flat and so is the preformed. C16 and 18.1 kind of vary along the same, same gradient, a little bit less of the C16 at the beginning, probably because of mobilization. Same thing here for 18.1, and then they flatten out. But if you notice the scale here, we're talking about 20% up to 25% for de novo. We're talking about a little less than 30% up to about 31, 32%. Uh, so it's, it's not large variations. And of course, if you're doing year round calving, uh, so you don't have, so you essentially wash out all the seasonal effects, uh, your milk fat should be fairly constant across the board. The two graphs here, this was work done by uh, Dave Barbano, um, looking at de novo, de novo plus preformed and preformed fatty acids with week of lactation, follows pretty well the, the slide from Quebec and Ontario, where the preformed fatty acids were higher at the beginning, came down and settled in at about 35%. Uh, the de novo lower at the beginning, and wound up at about 
25, just shy of 25% for the rest of lactation. And the output of fatty acids in milk, pretty much the same. This is the, the graph on the left is percent. Uh, the graph on the right is grams per cow per day. It follows very well with the, uh, the graph on the left. The big difference, of course, was in Paris versus multi-paris. DN is de novo, PF is preformed. Um, obviously for the uh, blue and purple, the difference here is basically lactation, first lactation versus multi-paris cows. So what about PFAD? This was part of that uh, Quebec, Ontario study where they took herds, all the herds that they did and separated them out into those that were not being fed uh, supplemental fat and those that were fed calcium salts of palm fatty acids. That's what this CSPF is. And the contention was that C16 uh, increases the melting point of fat, so it's going to make butter hard and cheese harder. Um, 18.1 is going to lower that because it's unsaturated. And what you see here is that the controlled cows settled in at about 31% C16. When you supplemented them with calcium salts of palm fatty acids, they came in at 32 not significantly different. The spread was still there. The control spread was 24% to 46%. And for the calcium salt groups, it was 26% to 45%. Huge variation. 18.1 tended to have some downward pressure. So, uh, so 21% for 18.1 on the control, 26%, so higher 18.1, higher unsaturated fat in the uh, calcium salt group. But when you look at the range, again, there's a lot of overlap. 21 versus 15, I'm sorry, 21 to 15, min and max. And for the calcium salts, 20 to 32. And the reason has to, the reason this whole thing came up was because it's a chemical fact. Anybody who's taken chemistry uh, knows that saturated fatty acids will melt at a higher point. So palmitic and stearic acid versus unsaturated fatty acids, which basically melt at minus five and minus 11. The more unsaturations there are, the lower is the melting point. Uh, oleic acid being somewhat in between. But the amounts that wind up in milk, because cows just don't eat 16-0 or 18-0, they're consuming actually in their base diet, mainly 18-2 and 18-3. They eat 
consume pretty much unsaturated fatty acids. Now, those get biohydrogenated in the rumen to various extents. Uh, so they do turn into 18.1 and eventually 18.0 if they stay in the rumen long enough or can produce CLAs and cause problems with milk fat production. And the cheese industry actually has a term that they call solid fat, solid fat content. Uh, solid fat content is a function of temperature uh, determined in Emmental cheese. So you can imagine that this was not derived in the US uh, but it was determined in Emmental cheese, that's the standard, at the end of ripening, which takes 52 days. And they're using differential scanning calorimetry. So uh, what, this what this graph shows is pretty much that at lower temperatures, you have more solid fat in the milk than at higher temperatures. Now, I'm not an expert on cheese, but I would imagine that you would like to have your cheese, your milk fat in cheese to remain solid over a higher range of temperatures than a lower range of temperatures. Otherwise you wind up with greasy type of cheese. Um, for butter, yeah, it depends what you're using the butter for. Obviously you want spreadable butter if you're spreading it on your toast. Uh, but you want hard butter if you're a baker because you like those chunks of butter to remain chunky while you're mixing your flour. Or at least that's what I'm told. So as far as the solid fat content summary, there's a huge variation. Uh, and I'm not saying that feeding more palmitic acid will not increase palmitic acid in milk, there is a point at which you probably will. I don't think anybody feeds enough uh, to really cause that to go off the charts. Uh, the temperature influence, you have lower solid fat content at higher temperatures. Your butter melts quicker in the summer for those people that are making butter from summer milk. Uh, there's a genetic influence. Jerseys have a higher solid fat content because they have a higher saturated fat content. Uh, and it's ideal for baking. The British love it for scones and their clotted cream. The French love it for their creme fraiche. Um, and that there is an influence of parity, stage of lactation, and also the estrous cycle not really worried about this because the estrous cycle really changes fatty acid composition, but it's for a very short time and it's an individual cow thing. It's not, all your cows are not in estrus at the same time. Fresh grass tends to lower the saturated fat, the solid fat content because of the higher unsaturated fatty acids. Grass versus maize or corn silage has a higher solids fat content. Could be because of the loss of unsaturated fatty acids in maize silage to different types of fermentation. But that's my speculation. Palmitic acid tends to increase uh, over, you know, within a range, increases the solids fat content. Steric acid 
basically doesn't change. There's a tendency towards increasing the, the solids fat content. However, the stearic acid content of milk is pretty constant, regardless of the other changes. Don't forget that most of the total fat consumed by a cow is going to wind up being steric acid. Um, they eat, they consume 18.2 and 18.3 and some 18.1, but what winds up getting into the intestine is more 18.0 or steric acid. And then depending upon uh, how much you feed and what the protection level is, 18.1 tends to reduce solids fat content because if you're feeding calcium salts, uh, you wind up protecting a portion of those 18.1s from getting by the rumen. There is some biohydrogenation that occurs, uh, but it's much less for calcium salts than it is for the native oils. And then 18.2, uh, which is what the cow primarily eats in her native ration, would reduce solids fat content if the 18.2 actually got to the blood and was um, absorbed and used as preformed fatty acids. So can we get solids fat, solid fat content in butter the same throughout the year? Probably not. And if you did a study um, comparing butter produced in the summer versus the winter, unless the animals are on identical rations, uh, probably won't happen. People tend, or at least the, the major food manufacturers, butter manufacturers, tend to blend summer fats and winter fats so that their butter is fairly consistent over time. And then we're just going to have to accept the influence of seasons. So what's the last point about palm? This is where you get into the, uh, the environmental aspects. From the growing and producing and uh, harvesting processing of palm, there really isn't, a, in fact, it's more environmentally friendly from that standpoint. Where it falls apart is that most of the palm plantations, um, less now, but most of the palm plantations that were put in uh, 25 years ago were done by burning rainforests and clearing land. Uh, so it, it is a, a big environmental concern. Uh, the other concern was in labor, using labor. Uh, and this has been a concern worldwide, especially in Indonesia and Malaysia. So there is a group that's called the RSPO. That's uh, uh, Roundtable for, for Sustainable Palm Oil Production. And what this is, is a group of palm oil producers that get together and adhere to these, these eight principles. Uh, in order to become a member, you have to prove that you're in compliance with all of these issues. So responsible consideration of employment, environmentally responsible and conservation of natural resources, biodiversity that essentially 
precludes any more burning of rainforests for if you want to be a member of this. And as the world is becoming more environmentally aware, uh, they're forcing, and it's not a bad kind of forcing, they're forcing the issue um, of this environmental conservation by actually requesting and purchasing oils only from members of this RSPO group. And there is a website if you want to see what they're all about, rspo.org. We, Armin Hammer, Animal Nutrition is a member of this. Uh, what you see here is a shift. This is 2018, 2019. I don't have the most recent impact report, uh, or actually it isn't out yet. But what you see is in Indonesia, if you look at those, the increase in RSPO certified areas, you see that there's an increase in 12%. In Malaysia, there's an increase of 6%. Other countries are also increasing, not so much in Africa, but in Latin America, they're increasing as well. And all of the oil, all of the PFAD, the palm fatty acid distillate that we buy is from RSPO certified regions. And what's gonna happen with time is as these plantations go out of production, the ones that were established on uh, essentially rainforest burning, uh, they're, they're gonna have to be reestablished somewhere else. And they're gonna have to do as much as possible to restore the habitat in those areas. How easy that is, I'm not sure, but that, that's the intent. So really what that does is it takes away, as this is happening and we're getting more and more of these sustainable uh, forms of palm oil cropping, that pretty much takes away the concern of environmental uh, impacts. And it also takes away some of the employment, uh, let's say fair, fair employment practices, it would be like fair trade coffee or something like that, it's very similar. And I just wanted to show you that palm oil <clears throat> is primarily palmitic acid, 44%, and oleic acid, 39%. Uh, the other fatty acids are minor. Linoleic can come in as high as 10 or 11%. Um, but if you look at that palm kernel oil, it almost mimics identically coconut oil. And again, it's primarily used for industrial purposes. But palm oil itself, not PFAD, but palm oil is used in, you'd be hard pressed to find a food, a processed food in your supermarkets that do not have palm oil. Uh, probably one of the biggest users in the food industry is peanut butter. Uh, peanut butter has palm oil mainly because it will stop the peanut butter from separating because it hardens at a lower temperature. It's a very small amount, but enough to add enough C16-0, uh, palmitic acid, to prevent the 
the peanut butter from separating, at least at normal storage temperatures. Now, there are differential responses to different fatty acids. And this is some work that was done basically by uh, the Michigan State group with Adam, Adam Locke's group. Uh, this, was, this is a few years old. And they did a meta-analysis and this, this showed pretty conclusively and also matches up with a lot of studies that are reported uh, that if you look at total fat intake, not just supplemental fat, but the total fat intake of a cow, that the digestibility of the total fatty acids in the diet decrease as your fat intake increases. And th this is not a surprise. Um, the, there is a differential response, though, between steric acid and palmitic acid. So if we look at steric acid, we see that this depression in digestibility occurs at a faster rate than it does for palmitic acid. It still decreases. It's just the rate of the decrease is greater as you incrementally increase 18-0 versus 16-0. Still worthwhile to feed fat. I mean, from the standpoint of energy within certain limits, you, you realize that Everybody has their own limit. I particularly don't like to see diets more than six to seven percent total fat. Um, once you start getting higher than that, you run the risk of getting into this area where you're reducing fatty acid digestibility, and then it's just a trade-off. That same group also showed. And again, we're talking here about this graph on the left is total fatty acid digestibilities. So that four, five, 6% total fat in the diet. And what happens when the supplemental fat, okay, these are three different supplemental fat, fatty acid profiles. One is high palm, so 80% palmitic acid. This one here is a 40-40 blend of palmitic and steric acid. And here you have a 45-35 blend of palmitic oleic acid. And what you see here is that this, once you start introducing the 18-0, you're getting somewhat of a depression in total fatty acid digestibility in the diet, as opposed to the other two fatty acid sources. The control diet did not have any supplemental fat. So what you can take away from this is that adding palmitic acid is not going to change the total fatty acid digestibility. Changing it to a fat source with 16-0 and 18-1 will give you a slight increase in digestibility. It was significant, but it's not, you're talking about here 78 versus 79 or so percent. Um, and when we look at the specific digestibility of palmitic acid with those same blends, here's where we see that you can actually decrease the C16 digestibility by adding C16 compared to the control. Uh, 
by a small amount, about 4%. Um, C18, adding C16 and C18 will reduce by 12%. And adding that 18.1 increases C16 digestibility. And this is not new to monogastric nutritionists. Uh, C18.1 or oleic acid is known to improve the digestibility of fatty acids in the small intestine. If we look at the digestibility of the 18 carbon fatty acids, so 18.0, 18.1, 18.2, 18.3, no difference by adding palmitic acid, no difference by adding both palmitic and oleic acids, but you do see this slight depression when you're feeding additional or supplemental 18-0 on top of what's coming out from the rumen. And the other thing to consider on fatty acids is that fatty acids have an effect, a metabolic effect. Now we all know that you know, the 18.2 and 18.3 or omega-3 and omega-6 story that those actually do function in um, cell membrane integrity, they function in immune responses, uh, but even these non-essential fatty acids, palmitic and oleic, have a differential effect on whether the animal is partitioning energy to milk or partitioning energy to body weight gain. Where palmitic acid, uh, and this, this was a very nice study published by Locke's group, by D'Souza, um, shows that you get more energy partitioning to milk as you increase the amount of C16. You get more energy partitioning towards body weight when you're feeding more and more C18-1, more oleic acid. Now, obviously, this probably an ideal balance between these two, but we all know that partitioning to body weight or partitioning to milk, uh, if you were to come up with very specific formulations, I don't think very many people are going to wind up being able to feed or store three or four different fat supplements on their farm. So basically we're gonna have to settle for, unless you can do that uh, or wanna do it, you're really gonna to have to settle for a mixture of the two to really make sure that you're partitioning the way you want it to. Now in early lactation, uh, it depends upon your purpose. You may want to partition more towards body weight once they get over the peak and more towards milk in the early part. On the other hand, you don't want them to lose too much body weight. So you should put in some 18.1. So bottom line is it's gonna be a mixture of the two. So that's about all I have to tell you about POM. I don't wanna get into the specifics of fatty acid metabolism. Well, I want to, but that's not the purpose of the talk. What I did wanna do here is try to familiarize you with what some of the issues are, uh, more social issues and production issues regarding these fatty acids and their fatty acid profiles. So I thank you for your time. And if you have any questions, keep them coming. 
I have a few bit of housekeeping details to take care of before we get to the questions. There have been some questions in the chat window. And let me do this correctly. Um, and we will, I also um, will bring up these slides so that if Elliot needs to refer to a specific slide at the end of, at, while he's answering some of the questions, he can just tell me which one to go to. So I'll leave it like this so that I can easily scroll. Um, all right, so thank you first for joining us. As a reminder, Dr. Block's slides will be available as a PDF document for download from our website. That page will have links to the recording and the PDF presentation there. I do convert the audio to podcasts. You can find those under the podcast tab on the, webinar, on the website or subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. We'll get to questions in a few minutes. First, I wanna thank my team and my sponsors and tell you about next month's web webinar. Um, next month, we will feature Dr. Frank Mittler, the director of the CLEAR Center at UC Davis. The working title of his presentation is The Real Story About Climate Change and Animal Agriculture. Frank will join us June 9th again at 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. We will be following the same format as this webinar featuring AMTS office hours 30 minutes prior to the start of each webinar. So show up early if you have a nutrition or program related question. This morning, I am joined by my AM, members of my AMTS team and um, some distributors, Lynn Gilbert, who helps with everything, and Tom Taluki, who can be relied on for knowledge about nearly everything and intelligent conversation on occasion. AMTS support sales and boots on the ground nutritional knowledge is by a wet network of global distributors. This morning, Elena Bonfante from Dairy Innovations Italia and our Italian distributor, and Marty Traxler of La Tech, who serves as our distributor in Mexico, in, joined us in both the office hours and during the webinar. And we were joined by Dr. Huday Kavustran of Zerve and our distributor in Turkey. They're going to join with questions and observations based on their personal consulting experience and regional specific issues. I value their input tremendously. I also wanna give all the credit for office hours to Elena. Vijay Durbal, another AMTS team member and our chief technology officer has been pitching a podcast like Cows and Coffee concept for years. Our discussion this morning between Elena, Tom, Marty and Elliot came pretty close and it was fun. We have a wonderfully supportive network of sponsors who help pay our speakers and justify my time commitment to this project. We thank our gold sponsors, Arm & Hammer, Animal and Food Production, hashtag Science Hearted, the Canola Council of Canada, learn more about feeding canola at canolamazing.com, Adina, experts in animal nutrition with expertise in plant bioactives, and Protetka, transforming the future of farm animal health. Our silver sponsors are the Forage Analysis Labs of Dairyland Laboratories and Dairy One, both with affiliates around the world, Adiseo, Ruminant Nutrition Solutions to Ensure Animal Performance, and Novameal from Novita Nutrition. Our bronze sponsors are AminoMax, Virtus Nutrition, Origination Inc., and Balchem. Each of these companies support education and research worldwide. We hope that you consider them in your formulation decisions. 
I'm done talking. Now <laughs> we'll have some questions. Um, our panelists today, um, Elena had to leave early, unfortunately. So um, I'm going to ask our panelists to say hello. And Elliot, thank you so much. Tom, is Tom still here? Yep. Tom, Marty, Lynn, and Hudai are all here with um, questions and comments. And we'll also tackle the questions in the chat window. Hello. Hello. Hello, Hudai. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> you win. Would you like to go first with um, any questions that you might have? Yeah, okay. I have one question, maybe two questions at the moment. So first, uh, it was very, uh, very interesting presentation. I would like to thank you, Dr. Elliot. And if you go back to this, I think the number of the slide was 26. Yeah, this one. So I'm a little bit confused here. You know, when we look at the uh, solid non-fat content, when it is zero, I think the temperature, the melting point is a little bit higher. I think it is, we, we are talking just opposite of it. Is it right or I'm misreading this slide? Well, thanks and thanks. And just full disclosure, they're not paying me for this, <laughs> right, Marianne? <laughs> Wait a minute, we offered. <laughs> you did, you offered, <laughs> admittedly. Uh, solid fat is really, a it's used by the cheese industry. Yeah. It's kind of a misleading term because it's 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 not solids it's not solids non-fat. They've just taken the fat of the milk and determine at what point it it's hard. Okay, mm -hmm. so the solid fat content, when the temperature is zero, let's say, the solid fat content percent is high. So you have about I don't know what this number exactly is, but it's about 58% of the fat is solid and uh, the remainder is uh, still liquid or soft. It's not solid yet. That's all this graph really represents. Mm -hmm. okay, and you know, it sort of makes sense as the temperature goes up, you have less of it solid and more of it is liquid. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. <clears throat> My second question is about the uh, particle size of the calcium salt of uh, PFADs. Does have any effects on the bypass percentage of the? Uh... Yes, uh, the answer is yes. And I'll, we've had a number of studies to show this. It, look, calcium, calcium salts of fatty acids are salts. Right. Yeah. So you know yourself that if you take um, granulated sugar or, or better yet, salt, take salt, just sodium chloride, that's in the it, it goes into solution fairly quickly. Right. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that the salt process does to the PFAD is reduce its solubility. Right. And if it's not soluble in the rumen, it cannot be acted upon by the bugs 
to biohydrogenate. And there's also less fat, free fat from that product to coat forage particles and reduce fiber digestibility. Um, as you know, oil, if you add oil to the diet, at some point, that's what's gonna happen. You reduce fiber digestibility, you get biohydrogenation, you get milk fat depression. Um, if you take rock salt and put a hunk of sodium chloride salt block into water, it takes a very long time to go into solution. Same principle for calcium salts of fatty acids. The finer the particle, the more, more surface area there is per unit of weight. And you have the same rate of solubility, but it takes longer to get the whole thing to dissolve if the particle is larger. So yes, there should be, and there is, more bypass potential from larger particles than smaller particles. Okay, um, th thank you, Hodai. Do, do you have more questions or? No, no, at the moment, if I have, I will ask. Thank All right, you. Thank, thank you, thank you. And Elliot, I think that maybe tackled the questions that Akira had in the chat window with your explanation on that one. I, I could be wrong, but um, can you see those to see? Um, where's Akira's question? Calcium salts still have biohydrogenation in the rumen. Uh, the answer is yes, because depending how soluble they are, even the larger particles, you're going to get some solubilization and some release. It's not 100% bypass. Uh, but whether it's 60% uh, bypass or 20% bypass really depends more on the particle size and rumen pH. As the rumen pH goes down, you get more solubility. Uh, so, you know, an acidic rumen is going to have even a larger particle is going to go into solution quicker, faster at a low pH. Okay, thank you. Um, Marty, do you have any questions or thoughts that you want to ask before I go to some more of the chat window questions. Oh, go ahead, Marion. Okay, thank you, thank you. And, and Tom, certainly feel free to wade in with anything. Lynn, I know you always stay silent. Uh, <laughs> so let's see, I had a question, um, more comment that will maybe in, induce some, some discussion. Um, in addition to PFAD, um, RBD, sterin, and olein are also raw materials for fractionated palm flats that are fed to cows. These fractionated fats can be triglycerides or fatty acids with high levels of C16. Um, I think that's more of a, can you, can you go with that comment? And then I'll follow up with Chad's additional comment or question that comes later in the chat. Sure. Well, there are about 15 different fractions that the industry, the palm refining industry pull off uh, of the palm stream. One of those two streams that I showed you for different functions. Now, palm uh, olein and sterin are basically triglycerides of either steric acid or oleic acid. Uh, now, one thing you have to recognize is that uh, triglycerides 
are a little bit more difficult for the cow to digest as a lower digestibility than there is for free fatty acids. And that's simply the, um, the hydrolysis process that goes on in hydrolyzing those triglycerides into free fatty acids and glycerol. Okay, so that put aside, tristerin or, or palm, palm sterin um, is pretty darn solid. Um, palm olein is basically oleic acid, triglyceride of oleic acid. Uh, if hydrolyzed in the rumen, the triglyceride is hydrolyzed in the rumen, that would be like just feeding oleic acid and you would probably get an increase in um, CLA production uh, and wind up with a reduction of milk fat at some point. I don't know what that point is because I've never fed olein or sarin. Um, they're primarily used to take, to make some of these high palmitic acid, free fatty acid supplements. Uh, I think it was, yeah, it was, it was Bill Weiss who had done some really nice studies looking at um, triglyceride forms of palm versus free fatty acids of palm or calcium salts of palm and found that the digestibility of the triglycerides were pretty low. And in fact, when they were hydrogenated and made into basically 18-0 and 16-0 uh, triglycerides, the digestibility was pretty close to corn. Uh, so I have not seen these used, at least on this side of the world, um, in feeding ruminants, there's more use of them in non-ruminants, um, but that's, that's the best answer I can give because I've never fed them and I don't know how much of them are used in diets here. Okay, thank you. And to follow up on Chad, uh, another question from Chad, do we know the difference in greenhouse gas footprint of standard palm oil versus RSPO palm oil? If you take out of the equation, the original burning of the forest um, and the fact that that forest doesn't exist anymore to sort of clean the air, um, there should be no difference. And this is, I don't know this, I'm, I'm suspecting this. I would assume that there's no difference in greenhouse gas emissions in the growing and harvesting of the plant itself. Okay, thank you. Um, questions from Elena, because she had to leave early. Um, let's see, since the industry is trying to reduce the use of palm oil, is the hydrogenated fats going to be a valid alternative? And by the way, she says, hi. <laughs> I have a webinar with her in a couple of days. Um, uh, that's a tough question because actually it's a loaded question. As the world reduces palm oil, I, I don't know the, I mean, let's say that's, that's for perceived reasons because I don't think there's a real reason now, given what we know, to reduce palm oil uh, use. If we've taken out the, the, of the equation, the fair labor practices and the burning of forests um, I don't know what the downside is. There's certainly a health benefit or at least neutrality for C16 in our diets. 
So I don't know what that would be. Now put that aside and let's get to the hydrogenated fats. Hydrogenated triglycerides are, as, as I said to you, there's a couple of uh, papers from Bill Weiss's group at Ohio State a few years ago that pretty much shows that the hydrogenated triglycerides, which are going to be steric acid, basically, you're taking whatever, either soybean oil or corn oil or palm oil, and you hydrogenate it, uh, you get triglycerides of basically 18-1 and 18-0 and 16-0. Um, aside from the trans fatty acids that are produced in the hydrogenation process, not biohydrogenation, but you know, chemical biohydrogenation, bio chemical hydrogenation, I should say, um, you're, you're going to get a much lower digestibility of those fats. And maybe you won't see it. Maybe what's going to happen is, is you'll wind up increasing the hydrogenated fats in the diet without a concomitant increase in productivity. Uh, there was one trial by Adam's group. He didn't do triglycerides, but he did free fatty acids. And as you increase 18-0, you increase dry matter intake, but you don't change production. And there's only one way that can happen. And that's if the digestibility of that 18-0, not that the 18-0 is low, but it's decreasing the total fatty acid digestibility of the diet. And at some point that's gonna catch up with you. Okay, um, follow-ups of some more questions. Um, what about the quality of these kind of fats and are there other alternatives? We've been looking for an alternative for PFAD long before I even arrived at Arm & Hammer because we're always looking for the least expensive source of fatty acids. Palm oil is just the cheapest stuff you can get. Uh, so is there an alternative? I'm sure there is an alternative, but can we afford those alternatives? I don't think so. Um, palm, uh, what drives palm fatty acid distillate prices is really the biodiesel industry, because that's one of the major alternative uses uh, for PFAD is to convert it to biodiesel. So actually PFAD prices are more related to oil prices, crude oil prices than they are to palm oil prices. Do you think we're gonna see some, um, maybe a different viewpoint of palm oil? Maybe it'll be looked upon more kindly given the- Well, you tell, me, you tell me, do people still, do people still carry around the whole milk fat being bad for you. Yeah, right, right, sorry. I mean, <laughs> once it's out there, it's, it's always the first thing you hear. You don't hear the backstory. Yeah. So exactly. I don't think this is going away. And no matter how much education we do, I don't know if it's going to have a significant impact uh, in the short term anyway. But you know, what's the alternative to palm? You, you saw, if you go back to my pie graphs, on area planted versus um, at the beginning there, I don't know what slide, there it is. Okay, so to replace the, now I'll go extreme, to replace that 35% palm oil uh, that we have, 
you would have to increase, you would have to double or triple, triple the soybean acreage if we were to use soybeans, for example, which would basically take up all of the agricultural land currently planted in, um, in oil crops. So the pro it, it becomes problematic. We, we could want to do it. Uh, I want to replace uh, lots of things that would be better for the environment. Uh, but as I say, as, as long as that perception exists, the trade-off that you have here is humongous as far as how much acreage you need in order to cover the oils, the edible oils. What is the sensitivity of palm oil to changing climactic effects? To changing what climatic effects? Well, so if, if we have regions that are possibly drier or possibly wetter or possibly warmer, maybe colder, where, where will that affect palm oil? How, how sensitive is the range of growth? I can't tell you, but over time, it really doesn't seem to have affected. It seems that uh, because most of these, are, it's all tropical, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a, a small variation. I don't think, yeah. And if we go from across the world, from Latin America to Central America to Africa, uh, and then Indonesia and Malaysia, I think that it's going to be less... I think, I don't know this. I think that it's going to be less uh, sensitive to climate change, short of short of complete drought. Um, I think it'll be less sensitive to climate change in that regard. Okay. Um, so I've, I've come to the end of my questions, unless somebody has questions or comments they want to contribute, um, we, can, we can wrap it up for this morning. Um, and, and see everybody back, well, not everybody, but see our peoples back later this afternoon. Thank you, Marianne. Thanks. Thanks, team. Thank you, Elliot. No problem. Marty, thanks for joining us, Hudai. Thank you, Lynn, Tom, Elliot. Thank, thank you. you all so much. Thank you. Thank you, Elliot. Thank you. No problem. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you for Goodbye. joining. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you all for joining us tonight. This afternoon, I have been joined by um, some wonderful co-hosts, my team here at AMTS, Lynn Gilbert, who helps with everything, and Tom Taluki, who can be relied on for knowledge about nearly everything and intelligent conversation on occasion and disruption always. AMTS relies on the support sales and boots in the ground nutritional knowledge of a network of global distributors. Sean Lee of AnsciTech and our global distributor in China assists with the webinar tonight. He and distributors who joined us this morning offer questions and observations based on their personal consulting experience and regional specific issues. I valued their input tremendously. Finally, and not, and at all, not at all least, I thank and appreciate my hardworking co-host from Argentina, Paula Torillo of Athena, who, with the help of translators Paul Alanis and Maria Perino tonight, deliver the webinar in Spanish for an audience, audience in Argentina. We have a wonderfully supportive group of sponsors who help us pay for all our speakers except Elliot and help justify time commitment to this project. We thank our gold sponsors, Arm & Hammer Animal and Food Production, hashtag ScienceHearted, 
the Canola Council of Canada. Learn more about feeding canola at canolamazing.com. Idina, experts in animal nutrition with expertise in plant bioactives and Proteca, transforming the future of farm and animal animal health, farm and animal health. Our silver sponsors are the Forage Analysis Labs of Dairyland Laboratories and Dairy One, both with affiliates around the world. Adiseo, Ruminant Nutrition Solutions to Ensure Animal Performance, and Nova Meal from Novita Nutrition. Our bronze sponsors are Amino Max, Virtus Nutrition, Origination Inc., and Balchem. Each of these companies support education and research worldwide, and we hope you consider them in your formulation decisions. And Tom is being disruptive. Um, I'm going to open up our um, welcome everybody now that I'm done with all that talking and ask, um, I gotta find my right page. Here we go. Um, and, and say, Elliot, thank you for joining SCAN. No problem, thank you. And, and I wasn't gonna get grief from you telling me that we're not paying you because so right. there you go. <laughs> um, let's see, Lynn and um, Paula and Sean and, and, and Tom maybe, but I can boot him. Um, and he, we will be taking questions. I'm gonna go first to Sean because I'm gonna give Paula some opportunity to collect herself if she needs to with any questions. So Sean, how are you this, this evening? Uh, thank you. Uh, well, yeah. Thank you uh, for, for a very good uh, presentation. Um, my evening is okay. <laughs> thank you. Um, I have just one quick question. Uh, it's about organic farm use of pomatic uh, 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 or, or calcium salt. Um, the, this kind of products, you know, any comments about that? Um, yeah, it's a tough one. First of all, as far as I know, as far as GMO is concerned, palm oil is GMO free. Uh, but I don't think it can be classified as organic because there is no specific uh, organic production, uh, at least on not certified organic production of palm oil. Uh, if there is, it's very small, local, and it probably goes to the food industry. The PFAD that comes off of that is pretty much mixed uh, because if you've ever, I mean, I've only seen them once, but if you ever see these palm oil refineries, they're getting so much palm from all different places. They know where they're getting them from, but they can't yet separate them out unless they're sort of a boutique production. But I have not heard of organically grown palm oil. And therefore you can't have organic PFAD because that's where the <clears throat> that's what the calcium salts are made from. Yeah. Any any palm oil, if you look, any of the organic palm oil would just be um, expellers, I bet, because we can do the same thing like with soy production. You know, there's any as as long as as soon as you get into solvent based products, boom, that organic certification's out. 
the only organic soybean oil is from um, expellers. Oh. Yeah, no, no yeah. solvent extraction. So yep. I say if there is organic, it's going to be boutique kind of production because I haven't seen or heard of very many uh, palm oil producers that ship to these uh, expellers. Uh, and that's that's the best of my knowledge right now. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank thank you too, Sean. Do you have any more questions um, or comments? Well, I, I I like to as I we discussed yesterday. I like to broadcast this one in Chinese to Chinese audience. Maybe later, uh, I like to know if. Uh, yeah, we'll if work on that. Has um, time. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Um, yeah, I, I want to jump in. I want to jump in. Yes, here. please. I, I was going to go to you next, Tom. What, one, of, Tom. One, of the, Tom. One, one of the really <laughs> fascinating things that I saw in your slides, Elliot, and, and I learned a lot. I mean, the, the whole, I, I always wondered where the, the, the um, distillates came from and, and your, 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 your quick overview of, of, of the processing method really was powerful as well as, as the amount of volume because when we look at it you know i took 3.4 million metric tons of of uh, of palm uh distillate uh, that's only enough for for 9.3 yeah 9.3 million cows a day i mean so basically the the, the market is is pretty much a capacity then isn't it it's not really at capacity because there's, well, first of all, the, the capacity is more driven by crude oil prices. Mm, so yep, crude yep. oil prices go up. Uh, it's funny that palm fatty acid distillate is not tied to the production, the price is not tied to the production of palm oil. Uh, it's tied more to its use in biodiesel. Yep. So PFAD can be used in biodiesel production, and that is what drives pricing for PFAD. You can make more. I mean, you can always make more distillate. Um, of, of course, the price point for the palm oil producers is getting that RBD palm oil. Right? That's what they're interested in. They're not interested in the distillate. Yeah, and and you know what? Let, let me let me come back to that because if we look at if we look at now with the disruptions in supply chains because of, of Russia going into Ukraine and all that sunflower oil uh, disruption, and and we look at a country like India or even China where so much sun oil is used in daily cooking. In, in, in India, the, the, the first choice that they go after, they can't get sun oil, is palm oil. So yeah. is, the, is that adding additional pressure on the whole distillate side of the business? It's not adding pressure on the distillate side of the business. Uh, it's adding pressure on the oil, the, the edible oil, because in fact, Malaysia, I think it was Malaysia, recently announced that they're going to limit exports of palm oil to make sure that there's enough in country for the, for the population there. Yeah, yeah, and we're seeing more of that uh, of where these countries are doing export limitations to make sure that but their own people have enough food. They still have to, you know, have the, they still have to make the distillate and get rid of that distillate. 
Now, will will rising oil prices because of the whole Russia-Ukraine thing or whatever, just oil prices in general, uh, will that that might put more pressure on PFAD than than palm oil? They can increase palm oil production in pretty much a heartbeat. Mm. Uh, it only takes a, a year and a half or so to get trees established and producing. A year and a half. So so we're talking 2024. So, yeah. I mean, that, that's the whole thing is anyone in our industry un- hopefully kind of understands the lags related to how we change cropping systems, how we change all that in relation to food supply. But you're, what, what we're basically saying then is where we're seeing food inflation and food availability and availability of ingredients, we're stuck in kind of this shit spot for oh, there's pressure three years, four years. I mean, even even commodity, you know, byproduct commodity prices, you know, almond hulls and all of that. <laughs> I know that's going out of sight. Also, it's stupid. <laughs> Is there anything not affected? My waistline. That's a <laughs> that's a pity. Not for you only. <laughs> it will be if milk goes to ten bucks a gallon in the store. Oh wait, that's only organic. That's not. Have you ever seen okay. milk Stop reflect it. all of the input costs? Stop it. Milk price is probably the most stable thing since 1945. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what's the problem. Hmm. Is that the same in other countries? Yes. Yeah. There's, most countries, Marianne. Most okay. countries, there's governmental pressure to, to stabilize milk prices, egg prices, although eggs have gone up. Um, but the staples, milk, bread, eggs, um, those things are somewhat priced, well, either subsidized or the strict price controls. Hmm. Hmm. A well-fed society does not revolt. Right, exactly. Bread and circuses. I'd, I'd argue that with you, but that's for another day. <laughs> All right, we'll do that in Kansas City, Elliot, or, or okay. where, uh, we'll find some scotch. Um, let's see. I'm gonna, um, Paula. Do you have? I, if anybody has any questions they want to put in the chat or the Q and A window, I'm gonna let Paula ask some questions that she might have from Argentina. Well, let me ask Paula a question yeah. first. Paula, what's the price of corn of maize of of of, of, of yeah maize going to dairy farms right now in Argentina? Hi, all of you. So um, I, I really don't know the price, the corn price uh, right now. But I can, I can ask some colleagues and, and let you know. See what, um, Paulette, do your listeners have any insight on that? We can, sorry, we yeah, can ask, ask them. <laughs> ask, but ask your question while... Um, while Paula or or Maria is asking, okay, if you can. And Paula, <laughs> yeah. what, what what Paula, what what's yeah. the milk price in, in Argentina right now? 
I think it's around 35 pesos. It would be like 15 cents. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's 15 cents a liter? Or yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. To give you an idea, Paula, our net mailbox is around, it's going to be 53, 54 cents a liter. Yeah. Yes, I'm here. It's cheaper. Okay, I don't know how to stay in business. Well, that's why most of the dairy, there's not many dairy farms left in Argentina, Elliot. They've all been... <laughs> All right, all right. They 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 have been taken advantage of by milk by, by milk. Now I have I have the corn price here now uh, from one of the participants thirty thousand pesos a ton. Thirty thousand pesos. Okay, I'll do the math. Yes, please, Paula. While he's doing math, would you like to? Because he'll be busy, but not very long. He's so fast. Um, could you ask a question? I, I have, um, yes, what is the, one of the participants is uh, correcting me the, the price of the milk because we, we have two types of, of dollar here in Argentina, the official one and the black market. The real one. So, really? Only two, Paula? Isn't it? No, like there, there are much more, but two are the most, the most common <laughs> ones. So if you convert it to the into the official dollar, it would be 0.375 dollars uh, a liter. Cents per dollar right now. No, 0.85 cents per dollar is what the official rate is according to my system. 0.375. Yeah, no, that's wow. The Argentine banks are making money off of you guys. Yeah. So that 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 thirty thousand that that three thousand pesos is equivalent to uh, two hundred and fifty six dollars a metric ton. I wish I could buy corn at that price. We're 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 more like three thirty three forty a metric ton for corn for whole corn. Are you still there, Paula, with your question from earlier? <laughs> but your milk price is just, that's She's horrendous. just crying in a corner at this point. Mm, that's why you make your own cheese and sell it at a premium. Right, Paula? Mm, I'm not sure doing that anymore. Mm, all right. I'm going to unmute that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm stuck texting Lynn. I have lost control. <laughs> no. Marianne, can't you can can't you mute Tom? Just you've I'm met sure. him, right? Hey, careful there, block. <laughs> okay, Paula, are you ready for? I did not hear your question. Paula, could you ask your question again? Uh, the question is about the the supplemental palm oil, which is the recommended quantity to offer uh, to a dairy cow, a lactating dairy cow. Okay. First of all, I would not feed palm oil. If we're talking about the calcium salts, that's a different story. So uh, let's be clear. Palm oil um, is, is 
First of all, it's triglyceride. Triglycerides are generally less digestible than free fatty acids. Uh, and the 18-1 is almost assuredly going to go to uh, trans-18-1 and help increase the probability of milk fat depression. So if we're talking about calcium salt, yes. <laughs> then I would, there's not really a recommended rate. I mean, you have a total fat, total dietary fatty acid that should probably not be higher than six or 7%. Uh, so maybe 8% total fat as, as, you know, with the glycerol and everything else as a ether extract or as an hydrolysis fat. Um, so if your base ration is, let's say 5% fatty acids, you can add 2% to the dry matter as calcium salts. Um, and, you know, a cow eating, I don't know, what, 25 well, let's give you the benefit of the talent and say that they're eating closer to 28, 29 kilos uh, of dry matter. Uh, so you're talking about, what's that about? I'm not, not calculating in my head too well. Well, 2% of 25 is going to be five, right? Uh, so yeah. five, that's 500 grams. So somewhere under 700 grams a day. Um, it's not necessarily a recommended supplementation. Why are you feeding fat? You're feeding fat because you want to increase the energy density of the diet. Um, you have a limitation on how much of that can come as fat. So, you know, if you're feeding a whole bunch of, let's say, distiller's grains that have high fat or corn gluten that has high fat, you're not going to add very much more fat to the diet, or you're going to wind up with uh, either fiber digestibility problems or milk fat depression problems. Uh, so it all comes down to how much total fat you're willing to have your cows tolerate. Elliot, is, um, can you see Weebin's question? Um, is, is your answer pertaining to that as well? He, I'm not right. that smart. I'm not seeing the question. Uh, um, in the question window, from Dr. Adam Locke's work, the NDFD inc or increases as the C16O intake increases even to 1,000 grams. What is the minimum and optimal supplement rate for C16O? That's a tough one. Also, I, I don't think there is a maximum, I mean, again, it's your total fat in the diet that's going to determine how much C16 you're going to add. Um, C16 is one of those fatty acids that more or less uh, half of it comes from de novo synthesis and half of it comes from preformed. Uh, so it, if you're getting a lot of de novo C16, you're not going to benefit too much by supplementing on top of that. Uh, however, if you have a lot of preformed fat that's, that's coming in, uh, you're probably going to boost your milk fat more easily by adding C16. Zero. I don't know. I think it's more of a ratio of these fatty acids than it is an absolute amount. Can I jump in on that? Yes. You could. Uh, no, no, no. You will like this, Elliot. If, if 
because one of the problems that I've always had with, with, and I, I know Adam, I, I respect the world out of Adam. One of my problems with Adam's work has always been, they've looked at just the fatty acid profile of the fat supplement and they've never taken into consideration. What is the fatty acid profile of the whole diet? Absolutely agree. Because and, depending what fat you're feeding from, from the other sources of nutrients, that is what's going to determine how much or how little of these other supplemental fatty acids to make them ideal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you I, look I at most of our diets, we feed a hell of a lot of corn oil. Okay. And, and I took a couple of Adam's papers and, and ran them through MTS and, and calculate and looked at the total diet profiles. And, and the fascinating one was I forget what year it was. I'd have to go back and look it up. But depending upon the, the, the production level of the cow, the 16-0 to 18-1 ratio response in milk production and milk fat varied tremendously by level of production of the cow. Of and, 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 and that's fascinating as hell to me. But it clearly showed just going after pure C16 is really the wrong way to go. It all oh, depends, uh, it depends on what is our objectives? What are our objectives? What is the stage of lactation of the cow? What is the productivity of the cow? We, we, we may need to have two or three different fat supplements on a farm and target feed specific fatty acid profiles based upon the whole diet two different groups of cattle to maximize the response that we are going after. Tom, on a decent farm, I'm not talking about a 25 liter a day farm. Yep. Uh, on a decent farm, do you really think, with the exception of maybe correcting body condition score, do you really think that we need supplemental fats once you get past know, 175, 180 days of milk? It depends on, on, on the rest of the diet and where body well, condition score is and what our objectives are. But you can formulate without, Absolutely. without, without any fat. Once their production goes down to a certain level, I don't know what level that is. And that's going to vary with what the ration, the base ration is. Yep. But I think it's completely impractical to even think that either distributors or farmers want to have two or three different fat sources on the farm. I know. I know. That's why I think we're going to have to settle. And I don't think it's a bad settling. We're going to have to settle for some blend on these supplemental fats that sort of like, you know, it may not be the best, but something else would be a little bit worse. Yep. And then depending, when you, depending when upon you, the whole diet, depending on the whole diet. Are you going to change them according to the body condition score? Do they go to fat supplement two when they reach a body condition score of 3.5 or below 3.5? Are you trying to gain weight? Are you trying to optimize milk production? Are you just trying to optimize fat production? Yeah. Don't know. Um, I'm going to butt in and circle back around to the discussion of um, prices. We just had some input from Barry. Crosby that said a 1600 cow dairy in Eastern Idaho is paying $411 for flake corn. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not in Idaho. 
You really think it's per short ton. You really think it's going to be better other places? Oh, I know what we're paying in New York for, for ground corn. What? Well, hell, 330. Yeah, but and, your flake, the flake corn hasn't reached 400. No, well, it depends. Now, wait a minute. It depends on the quality of the flake. Uh, okay, if we go into a lot of California, Arizona, um, you, you're a high flake, so that's okay. Oh, say what? I I am flaky as hell. I'll admit that. But but you know, okay. If I were to buy flake corn right now in New York, I'd be paying thirty bucks a ton over ground corn. So this is twenty eight pounds per bushel, by the way. I'd I'd be paying twenty. I'd be paying thirty bucks over for flaking. So I'd I'd still only be three sixty. Um, it's, it's, it's logistics. It's logistics. You know, when I was in California a couple of weeks ago and he, and hearing from a couple of large feed companies in, 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 in California, the challenges that they're having with rail, you know, the rail companies have gone to these groups and have said, okay, we're going to do, instead of a unit train, let's hook, hook two unit trains together. So 200 cars at once, and we'll drop off half of it to company a and half of it to company b and then they mess it up and drop off the wrong half to the to the companies these companies are run are 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 challenged this is throughout the west i'm hearing they're being challenged to ensure that they have ingredients and inventory they don't really know when rail is going to get stuff to them i mean this is really bad I mean, we, the, the Western part of the U.S. is under some severe logistics challenges beyond the rest of us. Besides the cost of rail. Oh, yeah. As we see diesel go up. I mean, my God, I'm seeing diesel in New York over, over what, I think, 6.23 a gallon? Six, six bucks a gallon, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, my God, this is... The ripple effect on all of that throughout the entire system it is shocking. Um, I have a question <laughs> uh, from Weben. There's re- research showed that C16O could increase cancer metastasis. Given the public awareness that our industry feeds a lot of palmitic fatty acids, should we find alternatives or does the public know what we feed? <laughs> I'll let I, you I take just, that, Elliot. I'll take that. I'll let you take that, Elliot, because I haven't the public seen that data. Has no, the public has no clue what we feed in the first place. In the second place, uh, what they think we feed, we probably don't. Because right, right. It, I read it, that it, and it, I thought, oh, cute. <laughs> well, and I would debate the... C16O causing metastasis in the first place. In the second place, you saw what the C16 content of milk is with feeding palm fatty acids. It doesn't change. It does change a little bit more when you go to a pure C16 source. Uh, But, you know, even the medical community has downgraded C16 to a neutral status on health uh, hasn't gone positive yet, but it, it's now a neutral status on health. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I hate reading any article, whether it's human nutrition, animal nutrition, uh, even articles that I publish. You, it, 
reading them as a single one-off study is not the answer. That's why we do things like meta-analyses eventually to see what really is happening out in the population of animals or people. Well, and we had that discussion this morning that um, it's just something gets a bad, gets bad press, no matter how much good press come, follows that or evidence-based information Doesn't that matter. bad thing sticks. Um, we've been shared the, um, a news, the article, yeah, the some news articles. Yeah. And I think these are the Buttergate situations that you addressed in your, your talk, Elliot, but yeah, it doesn't go away. Does it? No, it just doesn't go away. Well, even no, if it's it, inaccurate, even be, if, even beyond that, that there's, um, I forget who I was talking to in the last week. Now was it? One of their daughters was taking a class in human, and it was a human nutrition class. And, and the faculty member was promoting, it was a sports nutrition class and they were promoting um, no fat milk. For, no. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, and then like three lectures later, they were promoting how, how it's all about calories. And, and <laughs> so they're, they're, these people, academics, and this has been proven in the human nutrition side, especially in, in human doctors. I, I'm on the board of directors for a, a local group of, of uh, federally, federally qualified health clinics. We've got six clinics. And it, it is kind of accepted within in the human medical industry now that for a change to occur in be it treatment methodology recommendations for treatment it takes a full generation it, it it's the new doctors that are coming out that have been taught the new things or the updated things when things really start to change so we have all of the, and the sad thing is, in this case, we have this human nutritionist who is still using data that has been proven to be wrong about the impact of dairy fats or animal proteins and animal protein fats in relation to human nutrition. Yet, probably the last time that she looked at the data and updated her slides was her first or second year of being a faculty member when she put the lectures together. So we, this is going to take a long time for us to correct the, 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 the bad science. And, and then we still hear from, from USDA, you know, we listened to Van mm -hmm. Amberg who was saying one of his ex students was, was at the, uh, USDA, uh, hearings and all of these people are, are, bad-mouthing animal products. And, and the science clearly does not support them today, but 20, 20 years ago when that science came out, it did because it was driven by people that had an ulterior motive um, to drive their thinking through the industry. And that's still what we're living with. One of my fondest memories of past 
um, Cornell Nutrition Conferences happened a few years ago when um, Mike Van Amberg arranged to have someone from the USDA come and talk about um, the new updated requirements. And he was just skewered by all of the nutritionists in the room. And then Adam Locke came in from the back of the room and just sort of marched forward like an avenging fat angel. Um, and, and oh God, that's task. true in so many ways. <laughs> no, no, and took him to task, and it was delightful. But anyway, last I time think... he'll come. <laughs> Sorry, the last time he'll attend the conference. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. But it was it was one of the best moments. It just he he came from the back of the room to the front to just go toe to toe with the guy. Um, anyway. I think that we don't have any additional questions in our chat window or our Q&A window. Paula tells me she does not have any more. Um, Elliot and Tom, unless you have other points and Sean other points to bring up, I'm going to thank everybody and, and sign off. Does All right. That seem I'm, going to make, I'm going to work with my son on making brew stuff. No comments, anyone. Good night, everyone. <laughs> Elliot. Good night. If you. I don't see you before Kansas City, we will go have a bottle of wine or three. Scotch. You promised me scotch, everybody. All right. All right. We'll do <laughs> scotch. I'll bring Van Amberg. Okay. All right. Everybody, thank you so much. And Bye. good night. Thank you. Sean or Again, Elliot. Bye -bye. Good night, Sean. Good night, Paula. And Elliot, it was a delight. Thank you. Thank you all. Okay. Good night. Good night. Good night. Bye.